Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Ones and Twos Foreign Policies Economics Podcast. Every week we take two different data points. We tell you how they explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor, joining you from Berlin. As always, from his studio in New York is Adam Tooze, FP's economics columnist. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. So uh, this week, we're going to actually do two data points from the news. A lot's going on, so we wanted to make sure we cover all the bases. The second segment, we're going to follow up on what happened at the big climate conference that we discussed last week. But first... We want to focus on the Federal Reserve. The number is $15 billion. That's the amount that the U.S. Federal Reserve is going to start reducing its bond purchases by. That's what Jerome Powell, the Fed chief, announced in a highly anticipated press conference on Wednesday. Today, the FOMC kept interest rates near zero. And in light of the progress the economy has made toward our goals, decided to begin reducing the pace of asset purchases. So when Jerome Powell talks, the world listens. And that was definitely true this week. But in some sense, this was also Jerome Powell listening to what was going on in the rest of the world. He's uh, responding to some turbulence in the bond markets. And I want to dig into what exactly that all means. But first, as always, I'd like to start with a general question. There are a lot of things going on in the global economy, Adam. I mean, we, we just had this big international climate conference. The Biden administration is, is working out the details of this big social spending package. Why should we be talking about bonds? I mean, what function do bonds serve in, in the global economy in the first place? Yeah, that might not seem like the sexiest topic on the face of it. Um, you know, not even as sexy as I don't know stocks and shares, which have been at record highs in in recent days. Bonds just pay interest or what's called a coupon. So why do they matter? Because other than taxes, they're the main way in which governments fund themselves. So as of August in 2020, there were $87 trillion in government bonds outstanding and add another $40 trillion for corporate bonds. And you're really beginning to talk about real money. Uh, we're probably in the ballpark route now of over $130 trillion in bonds outstanding. And to put that in comparison, that compares to $37.7 trillion of the collective value of equities worldwide. So the bond market is just massively massively bigger. And it's not big, the volume that's out there, simply because governments and businesses want to borrow. It's also huge because savers and investors need safe assets to put their money into. So these things are crucial for both sides of that deal, right? You're getting an IOU with a fixed principal sum that you're going to get back and coupons which don't fluctuate. So everything that makes them tedious, in a sense, is what makes them 
important. And, and that then adds a third element, which goes rather against what I've just said, which is because they are kind of a predictable entity, they're also the stuff really on which economists, finance specialists and financial engineers get to work. It's really on the basis of bond portfolios that you engage in the really large scale speculation in financial markets. And when you talk to professionals about financial markets, what they mean first are, in fact, the bond markets, because what the bond markets are governed by is not, as it were, your guess as to how Apple's going to do with its latest smartphone, but what you think inflation's going to be five years, 10 years from now. It's governed by macroeconomics. And this is the market where the really big players work, right? So the American Treasury market, which is $21 trillion deep right now, is dominated by 24 top-tier financial houses, the so-called primary dealers. All of the trading is done by algorithms. And each one of those trades is conditioned by guesses about inflation and central bank policy in relation to inflation, which is where the Fed comes in. And so what we've been seeing in recent weeks is a kind of convulsive adjustment of expectations in this giant market about inflation on the one hand and how the central banks are going to respond to it on the other. And that's what made this announcement by Jerome Powell so important. Okay, you've actually scared me a little bit now. It sounds like, yeah, the entire global financial system depends on these computer algorithms deciding whether bonds should go up or down. Uh, I mean, it, it does to a large extent. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, it's, but, it's for real. But yeah. there is a human being behind uh, some of these actions. One of them is Jerome Powell, right? I mean, he is one of the players in the bond market. Uh, I, I don't know how he compares to the to the computers, but you know, in, in terms of his relative importance, but. I want to figure out how he made this decision to to kind of start easing out of the bond market. I mean, we say Jerome Powell, we keep hearing, at least when I read about this, that he's under pressure to do something. He was under pressure to reduce the bond purchases. But I've never really understood what form that pressure takes. I mean, Jerome Powell is a, a really powerful guy. He runs the most important central bank in the world. I mean, who's applying this pressure on him? Uh, I mean, I mean and what mechanism is that pressure taking exactly? Yeah, I mean, if you're buying $120 billion a month, not all of it out of the treasury market, admittedly, but if you aggregate that over the period of a year and place that in relation to a $21 trillion market, you can see the scale. The Fed is the, is the whale in the market. And that's, in a sense, the new situation that we're dealing with. So it has a mandate to square price stability with maximum employment. And then its other mandate, which is more tacit, but everyone recognises, is that it's responsible for the stability of the financial system. And you can end up under pressure as the Fed chair if these objectives conflict with each other. So a financial boom might be good for growth and employment, but it might be bad for financial stability. Or as the situation is right now, you may be very concerned about the progress of labour markets, which has slowed a little bit in the recovery from covid but you're also seeing an uptick in prices, which points to an acceleration of inflation. So how do you how do you arbitrate that? How do you decide when to taper this huge injection of money that you're making every month, which is what they've been struggling with? And so a lot of the time, what the Fed is simply trying to do is to keep things calm, keep volatility in prices of bonds low, keep buyers and sellers agreeing on roughly the price and the yields they're going to trade at what kind of effective interest rate you're going to be earning down the line, keep expectations of future interest rates and inflation aligned within this entire system. So the Fed's own predictions with those of the market. And if they're out of whack, which is what we've seen in recent weeks, that's when you see pressure 
because you see trillions of dollars moving in a direction which might be contrary to the way in which the Fed sees the future. And that's what we mean by the markets exerting pressure on the central banks. Okay, so we have some inflation and then we have uh, market actors responding to that. And now we have Jerome Powell responding to that in turn. I mean, so at the heart of this is the kind of move in inflation. And we just had an episode on inflation. So, so I got I to gotta dig in here a little bit. I mean, I remember the conclusion we drew from that discussion on inflation was, you know, that this was probably just temporary, transitory, whichever of those words you want to use. So why the big fuss now in bond markets? I mean, why are investors freaking out and, and, and central bankers being forced to respond too? Yeah, this is one of the reasons I wanted to get back on this topic, because it's a way in which folks can see the the way in which the stuff that we're talking about here is actually live in the market. So it won't be any surprise to anyone who listens to the show that I'm like super dovish on inflation. Um, <laughs> we should come clean with listeners about that, right? Okay. Uh, uh, and I was basically reflecting the views um, that were then and are still coming from the central bankers, at least the Fed and the ECB. They are sticking to the transitory story because the data tend to confirm that. That's what Jerome Powell was really indicating with his decision. Very gentle tapering. We'll put off the interest rate discussion to just a second. Um, but the markets in the intervening time, over literally over the last six weeks or so, have come around progressively to the view that inflation might be transitory, but the transition was going to last longer than we'd expected. So putting two and two together, what the markets had decided was that central banks, you know, full of people like twos who were dovish on inflation, were going to be too slow to react to the inflation. So longer term inflation on that basis was going to tick up, right? Because the central banks would come in too late to slow it down. So then you've got to adjust. It's not grounds for panic. You just have to reorganize your portfolio to take account of the fact that you're now anticipating that the central banks are too slow and make a mistake in regulating inflation. So what you do to do that is what you do is you reshuffle your portfolio and you sell off longer dated bonds, because those are the ones which are going to be most exposed to this mistake that you think the central bank being dovish um, is going to make. And what that's going to do is skew what's called the yield curve upwards. In other words, if you sell long-term bonds, then their effective interest rate, the yield goes up. And so relative to yields on shorter dated securities, treasuries, the interest rate on longer dated securities is higher. This is called the yield curve steepening. You'll hear people talking about this. And because the market was convinced of this scenario, a bunch of hedge funds did exactly that. And then all of a sudden, news began to spread around the markets that you know maybe it wasn't going to work out that way. Because this is like a hall of mirrors, because the central bankers can watch the market and they can see that the market is actually pricing in more serious inflation and a mistake on their part. So a bunch of central bankers led essentially by the Anglosphere, as Australia, Canada and the UK, began, as it were, to shift position and to come around to the market point of view. But the paradoxical effect of that is it inverts the market's expectations. So because the central banks, as it were, now come around to the view of the market, the central banks are going to act more rapidly and taper quite hard. In the case of the Canadians, they just stopped their stimulus program dead. The Australians abandoned their interest rate policy. The British have been talking very, very, in very conservative terms. All of a sudden, those steepener bets, which were on the assumption that the central banks fail to control inflation and therefore you need to sell long bonds, they're all the wrong bet all of a sudden. And so in the last couple of weeks, because the markets have realized that in a sense, they have pressured the central banks to their point of view, 
the markets suddenly realise that all of their own bets are placed the wrong way. And then you see this unwinding in the market where you see really heavy selling of short securities and people piling into the long ones because all of a sudden the inflation is going to be tamed. And that's what meant that all eyes were on the Fed this week because the question was, is the Fed going to, if you like, authorise, legitimate, side with the hawkish British, Canadian and Australian central banks? Okay, so it sounds like the the markets don't always exactly know what they want. They get what they want, and then they they kind of regret it, or they're they're, they're sort of not absolutely. Not. Yeah. And so, how did Powell calibrate his uh, decision here? I mean, is it, what's going to happen next exactly from his decision? Well, what's striking is that essentially the Fed stuck to its original position. I mean, it conceded some ground. I think at this point, everyone recognizes that feeding further stimulus into the US economy is really not necessarily what you want to be doing. But it didn't do so aggressively. And and this is really very striking. So they stuck basically to the script. They're going to reduce their uh, monthly purchases by 15 billion uh, relative to 120 billion per month baseline. And what that's going to do is progressively tighten, reduce demand for bonds to a degree, that will cause their prices to dip a little bit and interest rates yields, effective interest rates in the market to nudge upwards. So there isn't going to be, certainly on Powell's watch anytime soon, an actual increase in Fed interest rates. The Fed, along with the ECB, it's worth saying, are sticking right now to a relatively dovish position. They said they would allow inflation to go above 2%. They were aiming for average inflation. They are toughing it out in that position right now. Got it. I want to ask a more general question again. I mean, which is basically when we're talking about this crisis in bond markets, I mean, what exactly are we talking about? Are we worried that governments won't be able to finance themselves like the US government or... Is the worry really here about the private financial markets? I mean, is this crisis located with the investors who depend on these bonds in the ways you were describing? Yeah, I mean, I think crisis will be a strong word for what we've seen so far. Turmoil well describes the last week with prices gyrating up and down and expectations just not clearly aligned. I think that's the right word. And no, it's not a threat to government finance at this point. If that happens, and it could happen, it will be because of Congress and the debt ceiling, that story. The other more basic concern is that the US Treasury market ought not to be a dangerous place to be, right? This is supposed to be the market in which we trade in a very predictable way, the most liquid and safe asset in the world, which is the US Treasury. Not because American politics and fiscal politics is the most reliable, but because this market is supposed to be the deepest in the world and it's supposed to be the most sophisticated. And instead, what we've seen repeatedly now, three times in the last two years, September 2019, March 2020, and now this fall, is the market not functioning well, liquidity drying up, it becoming quite difficult to sell treasuries when you want to. And that's a really quite fundamental question for one of the anchors of the global financial system. Ultimately, in the biggest picture view, it's a question of American financial hegemony. Because when we say that the dollar is king of the global financial system, we don't mean the banknotes, we essentially mean treasuries as reserve assets. Yeah, that brings me to, to, to the last question I wanted to ask, which is a, a political question, a, a slightly different one. I mean, 
the way you're describing the private financial actors here, they're worried about what's going to come next. And then, you know, central banks throw them a bone and then they panic about that. They, they, they don't exactly sound like the most responsible political actors here. And nevertheless, you have important people like Jerome Powell having to respond to their to their worries. I mean, it all makes me wonder whether this whole system of the bond market even makes sense, or if there's an alternative in some way that governments could finance themselves outside of these uh, sort of fickle private actors. Yeah, this really is the question. I, it's, it's absolutely key going forward. I mean, fiscal hawks will say, stop talking about the plumbing, right? We don't need to be talking about treasury market mechanics. Just focus on the fundamentals. We're, we're only in this situation because you're issuing so much debt. So if you raise taxes or cut spending and reduce the deficit, the entire system would be much less gunged up with too many treasuries. We would also, of course, a Keynesian would say, most likely be in a huge recession. So you know that's one option, but it's unattractive. But it's the bond market itself that's the problem. This entire rickety construction in which government debt is used as the rocket fuel for private finance. So the attention is really focused on various types of reform. And there are three options being discussed. And I, I think they will be more actively discussed now, one would hope, in light of recent experience. One is a centralised clearing of treasury deals so that the banks and the hedge funds that are involved in this are actually locked together they have skin in the game of ensuring that this market actually works. It's always been assumed in the past that they did. But what we've seen in the last three episodes since 2019 is that at critical moments, people who think they're going to make losses simply pull out of the market and the market stops functioning. We can't allow that to continue. Another option would be to have a formally established public backstop, essentially say that the Fed is going to do what it's effectively de facto been doing, so you don't just do it in emergency situations. And this could take various forms, which get quite technical and complicated. But if you were going to do that, I think the third element that you would want, and this is where it would get contentious and quite political, is that you would want deep and serious regulation of private speculation in public debt. You've got to limit the amount of leverage hedge funds and so on can take on. You've got to eliminate the too big to fail aspects of this, where essentially, as you've been saying, the public sectors, the Federal Reserve's hand is forced by the kind of damage that might be done if some of these private deals go bad. Okay, wow. We really covered the gamut there from from sort of utopian fixes to more kind of incrementalist reforms. I think that's a pretty comprehensive view uh, of what we can do about the bond market. We will leave it there right now, but uh, we will come back with another news data point coming next. Okay, welcome back to ones and twos. Normally, this is where we go to a non-news data point, something a little off the news, something from history or uh, something just quirky that caught our eye. But as I said at the outset, a lot happened this week, including at the Glasgow Climate Summit. We uh, wanted to take the second segment to offer a follow-up on the results. I mean, the biggest one was right in our wheelhouse, in fact. The, The relevant number here is $130 trillion. That's the amount of money that a new alliance of banks and investment funds is committing to climate-neutral projects over the next 30 years. Governments were haggling over carbon emissions in Glasgow, and there was a lot of discussion of public spending. But at the same time, Mark Carney, the former chief central banker in Britain and Canada, he was cobbling together a group of private actors, banks, investment funds. 
He said that this new commitment that they're making, $130 trillion, is a breakthrough. The money is here, but that money needs net zero aligned projects. And there's a way to turn this into a very, very powerful virtuous circle. Other climate activists, they were more skeptical. And I figured we could adjudicate this discussion, or at least at least make sure that the two sides are not talking past each other. So the first question that comes to mind is, if private investors, these banks, investment funds, if they're willing to put up all this money, $130 trillion, that's a lot, do we really even need the public spending part of this, all the fighting over whether we can actually get governments to spend money? I mean, clearly, a lot of investments we need to fund to get to a climate-neutral economy, but, but wouldn't it just be easier if the governments were, were just focused on regulation and, and the private sphere did all the heavy lifting? I mean, would that work? Yeah, wouldn't it be lovely? I mean, it's uh, it's a fantasy almost as old as the latest iteration of neoliberalism, to be honest. I mean, that's the absolute core of all of the talk of public-private partnership. And it's reinforced by the extreme difficulty that we're seeing You know, the Biden administration have with its infrastructure proposals, which are relatively modest scale, really, by this point. And it just can't get them through Congress. We were you know, planning to do an episode about that. And as of today, we can't do it. The question about all of these public-private deals is, is, will they actually work on, on whose terms do they get done? There are some sectors in, in which they may work quite well. So electricity generation in advanced economies where you already have a grid and you're just adding new renewable capacity, we can probably largely rely on private finance to do that if you certainly if you set the regulations right. But even when it comes to something like electric vehicles, where there's big initiatives now from the corporate sector in the auto business, government spending is probably going to be necessary to drive charging station rollout, which is the key infrastructure component without which people can't really operate the cars. And once you get into regulations tough enough to actually force massive reallocation of capital, they're also going to be unpopular and will provoke pushback. And in a sense, you know, the win here is that people managing $130 trillion are broadly speaking signed up to a green agenda on which we then may be able to call them. So, uh, I mean, you're a historian by, by trade. I mean, are there precedents for this kind of capitalist self-restraint? I mean, you have capitalists forming a club to pursue these political goals. I mean, are there political precedents that you could point to for why this alliance should be trusted here to keep their commitments? Yeah, I've been scratching my head about this. I mean, there are loads of business coalitions of this type all around the world on all sorts of issues, and, and they have to put it politely a, a somewhat mixed record. So the, <laughs> don't, the, you don't need to be polite. Of, you know, we're, we're among the, ourselves here. You know? <laughs> the, chair, the chair of the Rainforest Action Network piped up immediately after Carney's announcement to say that 93 banks had signed on to the Rainforest Action Network. And between them, those 93 banks had managed to provide lending and underwriting to for $575 billion of fossil fuel investment in 2020 alone. So signed up banks to the Rainforest Program were simultaneously funding the fossil fuel industries. Another historical example that came to mind, which is you know even more discrediting in a sense, I was thinking of the giant creditor cartels that the Europeans, Japanese and American financiers tried to put together in the early 20th century to control credit provision to countries like Republican China 
after the revolution there. This was dollar diplomacy writ very, very large. It didn't work, right? The, the lenders couldn't agree with each other. The Chinese wouldn't borrow on the terms they offered. Altogether, less money flowed than before. The whole thing ended up as a totally discreditable mess. It was one of the great, as it were, accusations against the West and its imperialism and echoes all the way down to the present in the rhetoric of the communist regime in China. So, I mean, the, the question here is a perennial, like, is capital unified, capable of being a historical agent, or is it condemned forever to, um, you know, competition, rivalry, and a sort of short-termism? The, the question is the one that, you know, Frederick Engels, Karl Marx's uh, partner, uh, called the question of the Gesamtkapitalist, the total capitalist. Are they actually able to organise that kind of a coherent body? Can money talk in that sense with one voice? And that's the wager here. And and it's quite clear, I think, what folks like Carney would like to be able to say is, yes, yes, we can. Well, uh, I think that's our first mention of this gesamt capitalist in, in, in the podcast, but maybe not the last. We, we, we'll see. Um, but to get back to the scenario you sort of flagged before, I mean, just to clarify, I mean, should we expect also that in response to this, we'll get sort of competing banks outside the club, outside the alliance, sort of trying to market themselves as not being restricted to carbon neutral projects? I mean, could there even just be a race to the bottom now uh, and trying to define what, what carbon neutral even even means? I mean, what are, what are the other kind of like uh, race to the bottom scenarios here that could emerge? I think that is the big question, right? How much of this is essentially greenwashing? How much of this is just, you know, nice talk. Uh, a lot of people are pointing out that the $130 trillion group is dedicated to net zero by 2050, which from the point of view of corporate executives today who are expecting to be in their jobs for, I mean, an absolute maximum of five years, you know, it's an unimaginably distant point in the future. They Most of them won't be alive. Um, and in the meantime, you can do all sorts of things. The whole thing would have been far more impressive if they'd said they were committed to cutting emissions by 30% in the next five years. You know, then we could actually hold the people to account who and making this commitment. And there is absolutely the possibility of money coming in from the side, if you like, to top up the funding of carboniferous projects. I mean, another big deal that's been announced is this plan to, you know, end coal in the coal industry. But if you look at the fine print or just at the list of countries that have signed, it doesn't include Australia, China, India, and the US, which are the big coal consuming and producing nations. And there are absolutely diehards out there who will resist any form of regulation and will aggressively pursue uh, markets. The only thing that can really take care of that, and this is where you know we get to the tougher politics, is regulation and very aggressive carbon pricing. Either of those strategies has far more credibility than statements of intent like this. Finally, I, I wanted to ask if you'd indulge a question, I guess, about the psychology of the the folks participating in this financial club. I mean, is this really a matter of their real conviction about the future of the planet? Are they really kind of motivated by the kind of fears of climate change? Or is that just kind of a category mistake? Their heads of businesses and what they're really cared about is the future of their businesses. I mean, is this really just trying to get ahead of the politics ultimately? I mean, they're they're seeing kind of heavier regulation on the horizon and they don't want that to force their hand. They just kind of want to get ahead of it themselves first. Well, if you've, ever, if you've ever had an interaction with Mark Carney, I don't think, you know, you come away with the impression that he's intensely personally serious about this. <laughs> I have not yet. I have not so I'd, yet. I'd say I'd say that also about like other senior oil and gas people that I've worked with in the past in firms like BP. We're talking about quite deep personal motivations in which cultural factors do come into play. The, these people have an intense sense 
a very conflicted, almost tragic sense of responsibility in these sectors because they know how important energy is on the one hand, how massive the investments are on the other, and how significant the damage is that they're doing. So it's it's quite impressive at that level. And, it, and it's impressive because it varies, right? So within the BP organization at the time that I was working with them quite closely, there was a huge gap between the senior European executives and their American Texas-based counterparts. And, and you know, you could feel the intensity and sincerity of the European commitment because they were willing to stand up to bullying by their American counterparts. Things got pretty ugly inside the company, which I think is a sign of, of seriousness. Shell does now have a halfway credible commitment to net zero. I think it's a Paris-conforming transition path. And Exxon absolutely doesn't. So capitalism is not equal to capitalism. Politics, culture, law make a big difference. And they're also, and this is, I think, crucial not to separate, they are also gambles. They're business gambles. And these two things go hand in hand, right? If you're going to commit to this kind of project, you've got to believe that it's going to make sense from the point of view of the business. Otherwise, you do run into these issues of how can we responsibly hang on to people's money and invest it? So in their view, this is simply realistic. Do you really believe that you're going to be able to uphold a license to operate a company 20 years from now, which is going to be alleged to be directly contributing to the disaster? Not just alleged, it will clearly be a contributor to disaster. Do you really believe you're still going to be able to do that? And Carney, back when he was Bank of England governor back in 2015, formulated this idea of transition risk, which captures precisely this. In other words, how is the economy going to adjust not to climate shocks per se, but to the impact on the economy of government action. And I think if companies are trying to get ahead of transition risk, and Carney personally is part of this cabal of business leaders, which are trying in a sense to realise what those risks are, anticipate them and forestall falling on the wrong side of history. It's hard to see that that's a bad thing. The question, of course, is can we keep them honest? And that's, as it were, then a question for regulators. It's a question for politics. It's a question for civil society. That's a responsibility that lies ultimately with the political system. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. I do like the image of you bringing angles and marks into the halls of BP. I don't know if that ever came up there, but someone needs to bridge that gap. And uh, I think we're doing our part here with the podcast. But that will do it for today's ones and twos. That's a foreign policies economics podcast. I'm Cameron Abadi. And I'm Adam Twos. So ones and twos is written and produced by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. Rob Saxon, Laura Rossbrow, Tellum edit our episodes. Dan Efron is the head of audio at FP. If you want to learn more about what we're talking about, check out the links from today's podcast at our website, foreignpolicy.com, or follow us on Twitter at Once and Twos Pod. Those of you with episode ideas, we'd love to hear them. Tweet them at us or email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. Finally, if you like the show, subscribe to the podcast write us a review both those things really help and hey while you're here uh checking out our podcast i just want to take a second say there's a lot more great listening on cop 26 and the climate on another one of fp's podcasts it's called heat of the moment they're right now in the midst of season two this week's podcast is all about something called regenerative ocean farming i don't know what that is yet sounds fascinating I think I'll check it out. You should too. Thank you. And we'll be back in your feed next week.